I don't think it'll ever be possible for me to sing that hymn without goosebumps. How great thou art. I pray that that is true for all of us in our lives, that he is great. So um, last week, I uh, challenged everyone this week, last Sunday, I challenged everyone last week to uh, read the book of Jude in different translations through the, throughout the course of the week. Did you do that? Anybody? I saw a few hands. How was it? How was it? Was it good? Um, sometimes it's interesting to see how an English uh, translator uses what English words they use to translate certain words. I think it's really good for us to do that. Um, I want to encourage you to continue reading the book of, of Jude over and over and over again. This week I'm going to give you an additional passage in addition to Jude. But I have another challenge or uh, I want to encourage you to do something different this week. So on the information counter out there, I have a, a manuscript of the book of Jude. Um, it's, it, unlike some manuscripts, I did include verses in it, but, uh, and it's stapled just simply so that you can uh, you know, only get two pages. But when you, when you pick up a manuscript, here's what I want you to do. I want you to, I want you to pull out the staple. And uh, this is in the NIV. If you prefer to study it in a different English translation, really all you have to do is cut and paste it into Word and print it on uh, pages, make it large, put double space in between each line. But um, I, I want to encourage you to do what is called a manuscript study. So what you'll do is you'll take these pages, you'll lay them out on a table, you'll get a box of uh, colored pencils, would be the best thing to use, and you would lay it out there and you would just read through it, and then you will start to make observations. And here's the observations that I want you to work on this week, and we'll kind of talk about them over the next couple weeks, weeks, different observations. What I want you to do is I want you to find every reference to, to God, the Trinity. Um, maybe it's in the form of the Father or Jesus Christ or Lord, um, and I want you to circle them. And uh, so what you'll do is uh, maybe you, you circle, maybe you use blue or red, for Jesus Christ, and you find all of the places where Jesus Christ is mentioned in the book of Jude, and you circle those with, with a red pencil. And then, then, let's say you go through and you say, okay, now I'm going to find all the references to God, and you take a blue one, and uh, God the Father, or if just God is used, um, you would circle that in a different color. And then maybe you would use green to um, represent uh, the Holy Spirit, and then maybe, I don't know, I don't remember which colors I said already, but maybe brown, um, you would use brown for Lord. And you, you, you observe and you circle all of those. And then, and then what I want you to think about is within, and with only within the book of Jude, what adjectives that are used to describe those, whether Jesus Christ or God the Father or the Holy Spirit, um, within the book of Jude. And just see, see what you find. Um, and then, of course, if you're familiar with, uh, with a manuscript study, you can uh, begin to make other observations and that sort of thing. By the time you're done with the, the manuscript study of this, and you could spend you know, 10 or 15 minutes or, or longer on, um, each day doing this, um, you'll, you'll find that you'll have you know, little, little notes written all over it, and you'll have lines going from this page to this page, and you'll be connecting this theme with this theme and that sort of thing. So um, I, I printed out a number of these. I will, I will be out by the uh, information counter after church, and uh, if we run out, I'll print more so that you can... Uh, so that you can I, I couldn't get the copy machine to staple this morning. I said upper left. Where did it put it? Upper right. So then I said, well, okay, I... I 
I get it. So I selected upper right. It put it in lower right. And then it wouldn't give me any other options, so I couldn't uh, fake it out. Anyway, um, do pick up one of those, and, and I think you will find that's an interesting way to study the Bible. Later, later this year, uh, actually first part of next year, we're going to uh, spend seven weeks in the book of Ephesians. We've, we've studied the other three Pauline letters, but we haven't studied Ephesians yet, and we're going to settle in that book right after the first of the year. Anyway, um, so... Um, we continue to soak, meditate, remember, um, apply the book of Jude. So we're going to proceed with our passage this morning. Um, our biggest chunk so far, four verses this morning, if you would turn to the book of Jude, if you haven't already. Um, the book of Jude is in between Second Peter and the book of Revelation. Four verses, follow along with me. Though you already know all this, Jude says, I want to remind you that the Lord at one time delivered his people out of Egypt, but later destroyed those who did not believe. And the angels who did not keep their positions of authority but abandoned their proper dwelling, these he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. In a similar way, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. In the very same way, on the strength of their dreams, these ungodly people pollute their own bodies, reject authority, and heap abuse on celestial beings. We're going to look at that today. Jude says, you already know this, but I want to remind you. Now, um, those, that phrase, those terms are used often in Scripture. Um, we're told to remember, remember this, or God says, remind them of this. And sometimes I wonder if, if it's because we're stupid and forgetful. Sometimes I think that's where I'm at, but I think more commonly um, this phrase is used. In fact, one commentator said that remembering in the Bible is a duty. It's an act of the will. Um, it's a discipline. And, and that those who remind God's people are doing so to emphasize the fact that this is important. This isn't just something we can gloss over. This isn't just a minor detail. This is big. And we're going to see that today. And also... Um, we see that God told Moses to instruct the Israelites. Um, in fact, he said, use tassels to remember. This is found in Numbers chapter 15, verse 39. He says, you will have these tassels to look at, and so you will remember all the commands of the Lord, that you may obey them and not prostitute yourselves by chasing after the lusts of your own hearts and eyes. Remember, God says. I want you to remember these things. And just as we humans remember, God remembers too. First uh, Chronicles 16, verse 15 says this, that God remembers his covenant forever, the promise he made for a thousand generations. Does it say that because somehow God might forget and that he has to remember? No. It says that because um, it underscores the seriousness of God's commitment to us. God's covenant. He cannot break it. He covenanted with us to save us. When we celebrate communion, we drink and we eat in what? Remembrance. Because we might forget because we've forgotten details about what Jesus did? No, in remembering the significance of what Jesus did, how important that was. Now, I do recognize that we can get distracted, and sometimes I do need that slap in the face to remember. Hey, remember this? But I think more commonly it's used, and I think Jude, again, he's saying this, I'm not telling you to remember because I think you've forgotten. And the things that he mentions here are things that an Israelite or a Jew would never forget. 
He says, I need you to understand that these things are significant. Uh, and, and Jude uses three situations in the form of warnings for us this morning. But before I look at those, I want to focus on the very first part of verse 5, which says, Though you already know all this, I want to remind you that the Lord at one time delivered his people out of Egypt. God is the deliverer. He is our deliverer. He is the one that does the work. Um, And this isn't something that Israel was in danger of forgetting. They remembered these things. They celebrated festivals so that they would remember these things. They celebrated these things. They were incredibly significant. And we need to remember, we need to be reminded of their significance. That's that God delivered his people Israel, Jude says. God delivered his people Israel. In fact, over and over and over we see God delivering Israel. Why? Because they would... They would fall down, they would fail, they, wouldn't, um, they would forget, they would get deceived, they would go in and uh, live life their own way. Now, I heard the following at a recent, well, I, I wasn't there. Somebody told me that they went to a high society party. Anyway, this is what they heard. One, you know, uppity-up woman, it just happens to be women, um, says, my ancestry, my ancestry goes back all the way to Alexander the Great, said Christine. How far back does yours go? Miriam thought about it for a moment. She says, I don't know. All of our records were lost in the flood. (laughs) See, God saved them from the flood, didn't he? He saved them. Jude points points to the exodus, exodus, in fact. See, the nation of Israel was in bondage in, in, uh, in Egypt for hundreds of years. And God did exactly what he needed to do to free them to save them, to deliver them from the Egyptians. In fact, he did it in a miraculous way. He convinced the Pharaoh through a series of plagues to finally give in to the demands that Moses was bringing him from God. And, and for those that don't know, the, the last plague was the death of the firstborn son of every family. But God didn't kill the firstborn son of all the Jewish families because he said, here's what you can do in order to be saved from this. Kill an unblemished lamb, sacrifice it, and paint the blood of that lamb on the doorposts of your house. And when the angel of death comes through in the night, he will pass over your house and your family will be saved. Which is a... which is. Um, which is a picture of what God ultimately does in the end through Jesus Christ, His Son, who was the perfect, unblemished Lamb, sacrificed on our behalf. And we, in obedience and faith, essentially um, surrender our lives to Him, having the blood of Jesus painted on the doorposts of our life. And He saves us. But, Jude says... There's just one problem. Um, No, I'm going to go to that in a second. Hang on. I want to talk about the deliverance, the positive. God delivered the Jews. God also delivers us or delivered us in Jesus Christ. I just explained that a little bit, but it was in, in our God coming. The third part of the Trinity, Jesus comes 
To earth, we celebrated that at Christmas time, lived the perfect life, you know, was, was crucified, three days later was, re- was resurrected, and as Jude points out, Jesus Christ is our only sovereign and Lord. He is our only supreme leader of all, our only authority. And it's our faith in him that saves us, the Bible says. And God daily delivers us in the sense that he sent us the Holy Spirit. And we have this counselor who walks with us and fills us and gives gives us strength to, to be obedient, to say no to temptation. And the Holy Spirit illuminates the Bible right before our eyes, illuminating the paths of our lives. So God sent us the Holy Spirit, and as Jude continues in verse 5, he says this, I want to remind you that the Lord at one time delivered his people out of Egypt, but later destroyed those who did not believe. This is the beginning of the three warnings that were given right here in verses 5, 6, 7, and 8. You see, God takes disobedience seriously. He takes it seriously. And Jude wants to remind us from three Old Testament warnings. The first is from Israel. Jude says that God destroyed those who didn't believe. What does he mean by that? What does Jude mean by that? Well, I think what he means by that is following the great exodus, God brings the people to the edge of the promised land. They are on one side of the river. The land that God promised to them is over there. And he says, I will deliver this land to you. So what do the Israelites do? Well, we kind of want to check things out, right, before we go in there. We want to find out what we're going to be up against. So they send 12 spies in. Those, 10 of those spies come back and say, what? No way. These people are too big. They're too great. We can't do it. Two of them said, no, we can, we can. And, of course, the majority ruled, and uh, the 10 sway the entire nation. And they're like, no, 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 we can't do it. What is that? Lack of faith. Lack of obedience. God says, I'm going to deliver it to you. And they say, nope, it's too scary. So what does God do? Well, Jude says what God does. He kills them. Yeah, I mean, he, he does away with that generation. No one from that generation got to see the promised land. None of them. Because of their lack of belief, their lack of faith. He destroyed them, it says. Now, though Jews are God's chosen people, that doesn't automatically exempt them from having to put their faith as well in Jesus Christ as their Savior. There were many reasons God chose Israel. Giving them an automatic pass to heaven was not one of them. Now, Acts chapter 6, verse 7 says this, So the word of God spread, the number of disciples in Jerusalem increased rapidly, and a large number of priests became obedient to the faith. They believed too and were saved. Romans 9, 27 says, Isaiah cries out concerning Israel, Though the number of the sons of Israel be like the sand of the sea, it is the remnant that will be saved. I think Paul is saying there, or Isaiah is saying there, that not everyone, it's those who put their faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Salvation, you see, salvation is an individual decision. We're not saved by being a part of the church. We're saved by putting our individual faith and trust in Jesus Christ as our Savior. I'm I'm afraid that there are 
lots and lots of people who go to church every Sunday who think that somehow attending church or being a part of the community is what saves them. And the Bible is very clear it's not. It's our personal faith and trust in Jesus Christ as our Savior. So then what does Jude do? Then he uses angels as an example. Angels is the second example. And he says in verse 6, And the angels who did not keep their positions of authority but abandoned their proper dwelling, these he has kept in darkness, bound with everlasting change for judgment on the great day. We, we could, I could speculate a lot as to what sort of positions of authority these angels were abandoning. Um, there is a lot of debate, in fact, on what Jude means here. Was he talking about the, the angels that rebelled with Lucifer and said, we want to go our own way and God cast them out of heaven? Or is Jude referring to the case of angels having sexual relationships with human beings? Which I don't understand how that would even work, but the Bible says that it occurred. Either way, Jude is not necessarily focusing in this moment in time on what they did, but the fact that they were disobedient to God, that they left the position that God had given them. God had given them an assignment, and they refused to carry that out. Why? Because of their own, I think, selfish desires, which gets us in trouble a lot too, doesn't it? They, re they rebelled, they refused to obey It was an out-and-out out walking away from God's purpose for creating them. So what were the consequences? Well, Jude says that the consequences for their actions was being kept in darkness, bound with everlasting chains for judgment on the great day. The great day of judgment is the second coming of Jesus Christ. When he comes back and all of us, those who believed and those who didn't believe, appear before the judgment seat of God. And the verdict is levied. I mean, it's not even good for an angelic being to play fast and loose with the commandments of God. There comes great consequences. And then we have the, the, the third example of Sodom and Gomorrah. In a similar way, Jude says, Sodom and Gomorrah and the surrounding towns gave themselves up to sexual immorality and perversion. They serve as an example of those who suffer the punishment of eternal fire. The charge? What is the charge that God levied against Sodom and Gomorrah? They were a terrible, disobedient, decadent people. Their towns were, were filled with, with evil. And eventually, God judges them with fire after a long conversation with Abraham. And giving them opportunity. But ultimately, they choose themselves over God. And one of the acts that they committed, and it's very clear, was homosexuality. It's specifically mentioned. There's a reason why it's specifically mentioned. There's no way around it. Sexual immorality and perversion, Jude says. If you look at Genesis chapter 19, 4-7, this gives you the situa a situation that occurred. Before they had gone to bed, all the men from every part of the city of Sodom, both young and old, surrounded the house. They called to Lot, where are the men who came to you tonight? Bring them out to us so that we can have sex with them. 
Lot went outside to meet them and shut the door behind him and said, No, my friends, don't do this wicked thing. Now, I don't know whether it was unbeknownst to probably all of those men that went to, to Lot's house that night, but the two visitors that Lot had that night were angels. This is a warning to us. Not to justify or rationalize or change what the Bible says. And if we give in to our own selfish, personal desires, and we hold those above what the Bible says and what God teaches us, we're going to do whatever we want every time, I think. In a recent interview, popular, this illustration says popular, I don't know who this person is, but a popular blogger, Jen Hatmaker, was asked this question, do you think an LGBT relationship can be holy? This is what Hatmaker said, I do, and my views here are tender. This is a very nuanced conversation, and it's hard to nail down in one sitting. I've seen too much pain and rejection at the intersection of the gay community and the church. Every believer that witnesses that much overwhelming sorrow should be tender enough to do some hard work here. And in my opinion, what she's saying is, somehow we have to justify this. Now, I would say, yes, it's absolutely true. The church has been unloving towards the homosexual community, which we should not be. They need Jesus just as much as you and I. They need peace in their life and love in their life just as much as you and I. They need the mercy of God in their life just as much as you and I. And we need to pray for that in other people's lives in abundance as Jude prayed for us. The problem here, and um, I want to read to you a response by a former lesbian by the name of Rosary Butterfield. She reproved Hatmaker for this tenderness, she said, that leaves people in sin. This is what she wrote. If this statement, she said, were in 1999, the year that I was converted and walked away from the woman and lesbian community I loved, instead of 2016, Jen Hatmaker's words about the holiness of LGBT relationships would have flooded into my world like a balm of Gilead. I would have thought, yes, I can have Jesus and my girlfriend. Yes, I can flourish both in my tenured academic discipline, which was queer theory and English literature and culture, and in my church. Maybe, she said, I wouldn't need to lose everything to have Jesus. Maybe the gospel wouldn't ruin me while I waited, waited, waited for the Lord to build me back up after he convicted me of my sin and I suffered the consequences. Today, she says, I hear Jen's words, and a thin trickle of sweat creeps down my back. If I were still in the thick of the battle over the indwelling sin of lesbian desire, Jen's words would have put a millstone around my neck. To be clear, she says, I was not converted out of homosexuality, I was converted out of unbelief. I didn't swap out a lifestyle. I died to a life I loved, 
Conversion to Christ made me face the question squarely. Did my lesbianism reflect who I am, which is what I believed in 1999, or did my lesbianism distort who I am through the fall of Adam? I learned through conversion that when something feels right and good and real and necessary, but stands against God's word, this reveals the particular way Adam's sin marks my life. Our sin natures deceive us. Sin's deception isn't just out there, it's also deep in the caverns of our hearts. The Bible consistently portrays homosexual practice as rebellion against God's natural order, the way he created things. But I also want to remind us this morning that it is both necessary and possible to be saved from it. Just as it is both necessary and possible for every one of us in this room to be saved from the sin that we commit. To be saved from the carnal, evil, sinful, Adam-filled life that we lived before our salvation and before our conversion. And we need to remember that love is an important key to this. I have seen denominations. Jude says that, that these people secretly slip in among you. And they twist the truth and, and they're lying and deceiving people. To what end? To the loss of people's souls. I have seen church denominations say... Well, we made this decision because we value relationship over God's word. We can't do that. We will oppose the Bible at every turn. It is our measurement. It is the authority in our life, and God uses that to us. Now, again, I want to make sure that, that we don't get lost here. Well, let me, let me go on here. Um, look up here on the screen and look at 1 Corinthians 6, 9 through 11. Paul says, Or do you not know that wrongdoers will not inherit the kingdom of God? Do not be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor men who have sex with men, nor thieves, nor the greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanders, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Doesn't look so good for any of us, honestly. But he goes on to say, And that is what some of you were. But you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. Paul is saying, yes, sin is destructive, there are consequences to it, but we can all be saved. There is salvation for us, just as there is salvation for that neighbor you have across the street who continues to reject God. But again, I don't have time to go into it this morning, but I heard another speaker, uh, uh, a man who did prison time for drugs, and, and, and he was a gay man, and he, he wrestled with this um, issue. Is, is, am I going to follow the Bible, or am I going to do what I want to do with my life? And he was quick to point out this fact. He said, sometimes Christians think that if a person will just say, you know what, I'm not going to be a homosexual anymore, and they get married to someone of the opposite sex and raise a family, that they're okay. That's not true either. 
You see, there's, there's still the concern of their disbelief or their lack of faith in Jesus Christ. That's the key. For any of us, honestly, you may have a sin that you're just wrestling with right now. You can't seem to root it out of your life. you got to continue to surrender that. You, you, you have to lay that down. Repent of it. And ask God to clean it out of your life. You see, I, I had a conversation with another pastor this week, and he, he kept saying, well, I just... You know, this whole conversation about homosexuality, which is such a hot button in our culture. Although it's almost not like a hot button issue anymore because I just sometimes feel like we just all kind of throw up our hands and say, well, whatever, do whatever. And, and people are going to do whatever. But um, if, if the building's on fire and someone's in it and they don't realize the building is on fire, I think we should probably tell them that the building is on fire so that they can make a decision and make a choice. And Jude is saying, look, there's destruction. There is destruction, but what we need to do is point people to Jesus. I'm not the one that can convince someone to change their life for the better. That only happens when they're transformed by the power of God. And, and I need to find a way to, to love people, to extend a hand of grace and mercy and forgiveness. They will, they will have to make that decision, but they're not going to make a decision, that decision because I, as a leader, have somehow rationalized it before them and say, well, it's okay because the Bible says it's not. And we need to be honest about that. Paul points out here that we can be saved from sin, washed, sanctified, justified. How? In the name of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Surrender your life, all of it, to him. And he's, as he points out, after you have done that, other things in your life that need to be surrendered, be willing to surrender them. I find that I'm, I find that I'm constantly doing this, right? Letting go of things. And, and then sometimes re-grabbing them. And, and, you know, I'm like over my dead, hold, cold hands, right? And God's like, well, I could do that too. Our kids do the same thing. They kick and scream against authority. When if they would just listen and obey the authority, their life would be at peace. Now, the good news about this is that our authority, meaning God, is perfect. He doesn't make mistakes. Sometimes we do. Sometimes we make decisions for our kids that later we go, man, I sure wish I'd have done that differently. God doesn't do that. Ever. We can completely trust Him with things. So again, I want to reiterate what, Rose, what Rosaria Butterfield said. I was not converted out of homosexuality. I was converted out of unbelief. And once she was converted out of unbelief, God began to transform her life and she began to make decisions and repent of things in her life that he was telling her shouldn't be in her life. We need to make that first step. I mean, praise Jesus for, for all of us that God is our deliverer. Um, but we also need to be reminded that God takes our disobedience and unbelief seriously. And, and then number three in your notes this morning is be wary of dreamers. 
Uh, I was talking with somebody this morning and they said, you know, I've never really seen a whole lot written about Jude until we started this series in Jude and now it's like popping up everywhere. I know if that's like, you know, you buy a, a certain car and then you find out there's like a half a dozen of them in the county and you never noticed them before because, you know, you thought you had the only unique one. Like a Mini Cooper. I'd never seen one in Goshen County before I bought one and then all of a sudden there's like six or eight. I like to think they want to be as cool as me, so they went out and got one, but I know that's not true. Anyway, <laughs> one, one, of, uh, one of the things that I read in this was uh, this, this writer in this particular uh, um, article said that, that we, we become dreamers. We, we think up, that we, we use our own human thinking, and that's where we get ourselves into trouble. Um, in the Old Testament, a dreamer or a dreamer of dreams was one who claims to have a message from God. Some dreamers have true words from him, but many more have false ones, and they are dealt with very severely because they tell lies about God. I mean, God deals with dreamers, false prophets. Jude has made his position clear. Such teachers will have to face the punishment that all rebels against God have faced. He, God, cannot be avoided we can't make stuff up and think somehow we're going to get away with it. God is going to take care of us when we do that, as, especially as leaders and as pastors. And um, So there are, and we've been warned about them, dreamers and swindlers and false prophets. There are obvious ones, of course, like the guy who says that the world is going to end tomorrow. It's supposed to be tomorrow, the 22nd of April. Before that, it was like September 15th, and before that, it was another date. And, but the guy continues to say, well, I guess I was mistaken. It's this. Oh, yeah, buy my book. Give me money. That's what he does. But we also need to be wary of those who, Jude says, secretly slip in among us. And I think the only way that we can do that is if we ourselves are being students of the Bible, and we, as iron sharpens iron, we stay true to what I talked about last week, to the fact that, that, that faith as we know it, the things that we are to believe, it's closed. It's closed in its authorship. It's closed in its history. It is what it is. We can't come up with any new writings or anything new to add to it, and we need to be cautious about that. Remember what Paul said in Galatians 1, evidently some people are throwing you into confusion and are trying to pervert the gospel of Christ, but even if we or an angel from heaven should preach a gospel other than the one we preach to you, let them be under God's curse. Paul is pretty much saying, this is it. And if you hear that it's different, even if an angel tells you, because I mean, we've seen that angels aren't all good, right? Even if an angel tells you, if anybody is preaching to you a gospel other than what you accepted, let them be under God's curse. Let's heed Jude's warnings. Now, for our last point this morning, I want to jump back two books to 1 Peter. So turn back to 1 Peter chapter 5. Because, I mean, I, 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 one of the struggles I've been having is it's just kind of depressing to read this every day. And to read about the judgments of God and these things. I need some, I need some encouragement. I, need, I, leave, I want you to leave here today with, with hope. Now, I, I trust that I've given you some hope in the fact that 
that we can be forgiven, that, that we can be saved. And... But I want us to see here, um, as Jude will continue to emphasize and remind us to contend and, contend and persevere in the faith, in what we believe, here in Peter we see three hows, things that, how, ways in which we can contend and persevere, which is both a challenge and an encouragement. First uh, Peter 5, let, let's read 1 through 11. To the elders among you, I appeal as a fellow elder and a witness of Christ's sufferings, who also will share in the glory to be revealed. Be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, watching over them, not because you must, but because you are willing, as God wants you to be, not pursuing dishonest gain, but eager to serve, not lording it over those entrusted to you, but being examples to the flock. And when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the crown of glory that will never fade away. In the same way, you who are young, submit yourself to your elders. So elders, those leaders... There's a great responsibility here to lead, to teach, to train those who are younger than us. And in the same way, in verse 5, you who are younger, submit yourselves to the elders. All of you clothe yourselves with humility toward one another because God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand, that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him, because he cares for you. Be alert and of sober mind. Your enemy, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to, to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith, because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kind of sufferings. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. To him be the power forever and ever. Amen. So Peter says, preachers, pastors, shepherds, elders, deacons, leaders in the church, whoever you are, you have a great responsibility. And God will hold you to that responsibility. With fear and trembling, we lead and teach and guide and study. Members of the congregation, the team, you do as well. Look at verses 5 and 8 again, 5 through 8. God opposes the proud but shows favor to the humble. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Be alert and of sober mind. I want to leave us with... Three things this morning. As we live our lives, let's contend and persevere first with humility. Humility is important in our lives. Let's put ourselves in our proper place before a perfect, all-righteous, all-powerful God. Let's surrender to Him our abilities. Let's surrender to him our strengths. Let's surrender to him the talents that he's given us. And as we do, and as we, we put our trust and faith in him, we will grow. He will transform us. And we will, in turn, be more humble with those that we come across every day. We will serve them, we will sacrifice for them, we will help them, we will love them. Because as we experience God's love in our life, as we humble ourselves before Him, 
then that just becomes a part of who we are and we begin treating other people that way too. So it's, it's more like, well, I, why did you do that for me? Why did, you, why did you, I don't know, stop and clean off my driveway, for instance? Well, because, you know, God says to be good and I just felt like I had to. No, that's, that, that might be our attitude sometimes, but I find it in my own experience, it's just because that's just who God is making me to be. And it, it comes more naturally than not as he transforms me. But that only occurs when we humble ourselves, first before God and then to one another. You know, it's pretty easy for that, 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 that seed of pride to sprout and grow and become stronger and run our life. And I think those are also the times where we refuse to, to repent and surrender to God. So we, we need to, to contend and persevere with humility. Second, Second Peter says, cast your anxiety on him. I can't help but think in the midst of this message today, you have had moments where you felt really uncomfortable with things that I've said, where, where you were uneasy, and maybe it's because you disagree, or maybe it's because that's, that's real in your own life, and you've allowed it to be there, and, and, and you feel guilty. The response we typically have to guilt, I think, as human beings is to, to remove ourselves from the situations that make us feel guilty, when in reality, when it comes to church, we should, we should put ourselves there every day because that guilt serves to teach us and, and bring us to the point of humility, which is what God wants. But I also want you to hear this, and if there's anxiety, if there's guilt, if there's any of that Peter says, cast it on him. Cast it on Jesus. Take all of that guilt, take all of that uneasiness, take all of that conviction and lay it at the feet of Jesus. Repent of it. Let him have it. And hopefully you'll be able to let go of that and you won't pick it back up before you leave the altar. But if you do, I pray you come back to the altar and lay it down again. Until you, you truly see. Throw it all onto him. Cast it on him. That's what he wants you to do. Verse 7, cast all your anxiety on him. Why? Why? And this is the best news of all. Because he cares for you. Because he wants you to. He has big shoulders. He wants you to put it there. Because he cares for you. That's really the biggest message that I want you to hear as you leave today is that he cares for you. He cares for you. And then finally, the, the third one is be alert and of sober mind. Let's be aware of the fact that there is a real life spiritual battle going on in our world today around us, in our families, in our churches, in our workplaces, in our schools. It's real. And Satan seeks to destroy and kill. And God wants to restore and give peace. So may we recognize that there's a battle going on for happiness and contentment in our lives. There's a battle going on for the souls of our kids and of our kids' kids. 
and of our coworkers and those that we go to school with. Let's pray for them. Let's pray as a church for them. Let's pray for the church in America and across the world, truly. Let's, let's pray that the church will wake up. Let's pray that if there's something within our midst that we've allowed to, to be here, that, that we would see it and we would hit it head on. Let's pray that those that we love and those that we don't love would experience an abundance of mercy and peace and love just as Jude prays that upon us. True mercy, true peace, true love. Humble yourselves that he may lift you up in due time. Cast all your anxiety on him because he cares for you. Be alert and of sober mind. Lord Jesus, thank you, thank you, thank you. And Father, I pray that you would just help us to see the truth. I pray that you would help our friends to see the truth and the destruction that Satan intends in our lives and the lives of other people. And I I pray, Father, that we would heed the warnings of, of Jude, your warnings, as a church, as, as a denomination, as, as the universal church. And that we, would, that we would contend and persevere for those things that you have taught, for the faith. And I pray, Father, that as we do, as we wrestle with what you teach us in your, in your word about how we should live our lives and the decisions that we should make and the things that, that you want us to do and the things that you don't want us to do, I pray that as we walk alongside other people who are on a similar journey but maybe at a different place, Father, help us to have patience and mercy and grace. But may, Father, we not take the, the grace of God as a license to do whatever we want. May we submit to you. And Father, I just, I just pray that you would continue to teach us. Help us to see the truth of your word. Help us to proclaim it. Help us to see friends and family members also enjoy the peace and the contentment that comes from being in a relationship with you. In Jesus' name, amen.